So, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Unleashing Your Creativity. And the first question that you have to face is, are you inspired or expired? <laughs> now, the proposition is that mankind is naturally creative or inspired. All children are creative, which shows us that all of us are naturally creative. Despite what we ordinarily think, all of mankind, you and me, all the time, are naturally creative. After all, it is said that we are made in the image of God, and nothing could be more creative than that. If we are not creative in and with our lives, then we may have been born, but we're not really alive. Now, what is inspiration? It is an inner sight, deep within our being. It is always new and always unknown. So, if you take something like wit, if you've ever made a witty statement, it is as new to you as it is to everybody else. And that is why you laugh as loud as everybody else. It is a connection of knowledge within with knowledge without. And for a moment, the individual becomes universal. The real man or woman, which is ordinarily hidden, reveals themselves in all their glory without limit. All the powers which normally remain latent within us and unknown to us are fully revealed in that moment. And one thing that is important to note is this. Any work that we do to help us to be creative can only bring us to the gate of inspiration, but it cannot bring us through to inspiration itself. From this threshold we are taken. Nobody takes us, for the flash comes of itself. It's a sudden insight. In it is a total absence of ourselves as we ordinarily perceive ourselves to be. There's no past, no future, just total presence. Plato describes it as follows. Then a light, as if leaping from a fire, will all on a sudden be enlivened in the soul and will then itself nourish itself. So it is like a current in full force and the hand or mind cannot keep up with it. It is said about the original manuscripts on which Mozart wrote his music that they're full of ink stains and blobs. And the reason why is that the music was coming so fast to him that his hand couldn't get the music down on the paper. Inspiration or creativity possesses us rather than us it. And we have no knowledge of how inspiration works. There is a moment when I do not understand and then inexplicably in a nanosecond understanding arises and then I do understand. Now that interval or nanosecond is a mystery. What happens in that nanosecond? So, 
when you and I were at school and we were young, we would have been taught our tables. So let's say we learnt off that seven sevens were 49. Now we didn't understand why seven sevens were 49. If somebody had told us it was actually 243, we would have accepted it without any hesitation at all. But when anybody asked us what was seven sevens, and since we'd learned it, we would say 49, but with no understanding. But one day we did understand. You may not remember the moment when that learning by rote became understanding. It's a mystery. So let us listen to a quotation from Mozart. When I am, as it were, completely myself, entirely alone and of good cheer, say travelling in a carriage or walking after a good meal, or during the night when I cannot sleep, it is on such occasions that my ideas flow best and most abundantly. Whence and how they come I know not, nor can I force them. And those ideas that please me I retain in memory and am accustomed, as I have been told, to hum them to myself. If I continue in this way, it soon occurs to me how I may turn this my dainty morsel to account, so as to make a good dish of it. That is to say, agreeable to the rules of counterpoint, to the peculiarities of various instruments, etc. All this fires my soul, and provided I'm not disturbed, my subject enlarges itself, becomes methodized and defined, and the whole, though it be long, stands almost complete and finished in my mind, so that I can survey it like a fine picture or a beautiful statue at a glance. Nor do I hear my imagination the parts successively, but I hear them, as it were, all at once. And what a delight this is, I cannot tell. So Mozart said he had no control over his creativity. And whence and how the music came, he knew not. And he couldn't force it. And you can never force inspiration. If I try to force you to be witty now, you can't do it. Even if I grab you by the throat and say, say something witty now, and your life depends on it, I'm afraid I'll have to shoot you. Now, Mozart also said that he didn't hear the parts successively, but all at once. Now, consider when you and I listen to a piece of music, and let's say it's a piano concerto or something like that, it might take 30 minutes to hear the piano concerto. But he would hear the entire piano concerto in a nanosecond. Can you imagine how rich that would be to hear 30 minutes of music in a moment? So, that's what happens when we are inspired. So we cannot make it happen, but perhaps there are things which stop it manifesting, which we can then remove, so that it does manifest. Things like erroneous knowledge, or worry, or superficial thinking, etc. Perhaps there are conditions where creativity can flourish, i.e. when I'm alone and of good cheer and completely myself. 
in these conditions we may enjoy a different level of being or a different level of consciousness where things are not perceived sequentially and partially but whole and all at once just as Mozart said then we may be able to see past, present and future together all in a moment now later in the talk we'll come back to what is it that inhibits creativity and what is it that is conducive to creativity but first of all let's look at this all of us are artists all of us can be creative as Martin Luther King Jr. said if a man is called to be a street sweeper he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry imagine if we did the washing up in the same way that Michelangelo painted <laughs> or Beethoven composed music Martin Luther King Jr. goes on to say he should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well so we should not worry about what we do in our lives but do everything that we do do creatively raise it to the highest level as mother Teresa said do the ordinary things extraordinarily well so creativity has nothing to do with any particular activity such as painting and poetry and singing etc it's actually not inherent in the activity it is we who bring the quality of creativity to the activity and we can bring it to every activity whether an act is creative or not depends on us we can paint in a creative or uncreative way and we can also clean the floor likewise if someone is creative then whatever he or she does no matter how insignificant the activity may appear to be it is creative and the more creative we become the more godly or divine we become and when our whole life becomes creative then we become totally divine that is godlike so for a moment let us look at three fundamental questions what is art who is the artist and what is the highest art so what is art well Ralph Waldo Emerson says conscious utterance of thought by speech or action to any end is art and the key here is that it is conscious whatever it is if it is conscious it is art art is the spirit's voluntary use and combination of things to serve its end spirit in its creation aims at use and beauty and Ralph Waldo Emerson divides art into the useful arts and the fine arts and the useful arts are things like agricultural, buildings, science, tools, utensils, machinery, production, etc. 
And the fine arts are music, eloquence, poetry, painting, sculpture, and architecture. And Ralph Waldo Emerson goes on to say that architecture and eloquence are the highest arts, as they are both useful and fine. Now, who is the artist? Again, Ralph Waldo Emerson says elsewhere, there is one mind common to all individual men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all of the same. He that is once admitted to the right of reason is made a free man of the whole estate. What Plato has thought, he may think. What a saint has felt, he may feel. What at any time has befallen any man, he can understand. Who hath access to this universal mind is a party to all that is or can be done, for this is the only and sovereign agent. All art is the appearance of that one mind. Leonardo da Vinci painted wisdom. Michelangelo sculpted wisdom. Mozart composed wisdom. Shakespeare wrote wisdom. And Watt mechanized wisdom. Now, in order to make anything useful or beautiful, the individual must submit himself to this universal mind. With regard to the useful arts, art must be a complement to nature, and it is strictly subsidiary. So, work conforms to nature, or nature destroys it. So, if you take the Eddystone Lighthouse, it's built like an oak tree to resist a constant assailing force. We cannot build a house as we will, but as we must. A leaning tower can only lean so far. The slope of the roof is determined by the snow or the rain. There are only narrow limits at the discretion of the architect. Gravity, wind, sun, rain, the size of man have more to say than the architect has. The shape of a boat is determined by the law of fluids, an aeroplane by the law of aerodynamics. If we work within nature's limits, nature yields all her power to us. All powerful action is performed by bringing the forces of nature to bear upon our objects. Consider the force of gravity when we use a spade or axe. We achieve very little by muscular force. As it says here, try digging without gravity. You have no idea how difficult it would be. With regard to the fine arts, again, the subordination of man to nature is demanded. Each art has a material basis. So the colours are materials for the painter. What could he do without these and with creativity alone? The creative force is limited by the material on which it works. 
Where is poetry without language? Words which the poet did not invent. Consider music. Twang a stretched wire and it yields a beautiful sound before the composer has added anything to it. Bright colours stimulate the eye before the painter harmonises them into a landscape. Granite or marble are sources of great pleasure, quite independent of the sculptor's shaping. How impressive are the architect's drawings compared to the granite cathedral or pyramid? Millions every year visit the pyramids. How many would come to see the drawings? All this indicates how much of the beauty that we see is owed to nature and not to the artist. It's owed to the ultimate artist. As regards the environment, it plays a large part. The pleasure we derive from a cathedral is only partly from the cathedral. It is exalted by the beauty of sunlight, the play of clouds, the landscape around it, its grouping with houses and trees, etc. in its vicinity. I don't know whether you know the Pepper Canister Church in Dublin, but it's a beautiful church. But its beauty is quadrupled by the beauty of the streets in which it is set, the Georgian houses surrounding it. Often the pleasure of eloquence is to a greater part owing to the stimulus of the occasion which produced it. John F. Kennedy, you know, made that famous speech in Berlin, Ich bin ein Berliner, which just translates, in fact he got the grammar wrong, but it translates as, I am a Berliner. They're not unbelievable words, but the setting, the occasion, made it into a speech that uplifted a city and lots of other people. The highest praise we can give the artist is that he is the medium for the thought, feeling or talent. I've always envied people who have magnificent singing voices. I was reading an article, somebody had interviewed Pavarotti, and they were asking him about how much he practiced. And he said, five hours every day which killed off any desire in me ever to be an opera singer. I just couldn't imagine anything worse than practicing singing for five hours every day. Anyway, the interviewer was intrigued by this and said, well, what do you practice? And he said, for three of those five hours, I go up and down the scales. Can you imagine that? For three hours. And in the same way as I was stunned by this, the interviewer said, how do you do it? And he said, I consider this voice a gift from God. And it is my duty to keep it in the best shape and present it to the world so that it may yield the greatest pleasure to the world. Isn't that fantastic? And you see, if that is your attitude, you can go up and down the scales three hours every day. Now, nature actually dominates the creative act. Nature paints the best part of the picture, carves the best part of the statue, 
builds the best part of the house, speaks the best part of the oration. The artist is totally dependent on the aid of nature. And because he must conform to it, therefore he must study it, he must obey it, and he must be in a position to receive it. He's not to speak his own words. He is not to think his own thoughts, but be an organ through which the universal mind acts. There is a remarkable passage in the Bible where Jesus says to the Father, I did not speak any words of my own, but only the words you gave me. Imagine that. Imagine getting through 33 years and you never spoke a word of your own. They were all God's words. To the degree that the artist can set aside himself, so does his or her work become perfect. As Michelangelo said with regard to the statue of David, he did not put David into the stone, he simply removed all that was not David. And if we want to be creative, we have to get rid of all our conditioning. Otherwise, our creativity will be nothing other than copying. The Shankaracharya, the man that the school of philosophy put all its questions to, he said, the wise man achieves everything by doing nothing. Whereas we achieve very little by doing everything. Now, what is the highest art? Well, decorative art leaves us in the senses. All we can appreciate is colour and shape only. Experimental art leaves us in the mind. We might say, what a beautiful concept underlies that painting. But the highest art takes us even further. It makes us forget our little selves. It takes us out of ourselves, out of the body, mind and heart. It takes us beyond to that which is never created, but ever is. It does not arouse emotion or agitate thinking. It sets us free of these and reminds us of our real self. It takes us from forms to the formless, from sounds to the silence, from the beautiful object to beauty itself, from activity to stillness. Art is not the end, but is initial. We should not be left in the painting, but taken beyond the painting, to the source of all. And thus the highest art is a bridge between the looker and the source of all, the creator. Art only points. It indicates what the senses cannot perceive, what the mind cannot conceive. Art cannot actually contain the source, God or the Creator, but it can assist its revelation. So what is it that impedes creativity or inspiration in us? 
on the basis that we are naturally creative all the time. And the truth is, I, who I think I am, the ego, am not the source of, but the limit on all creativity. Thus, we cannot be creative, but can only limit our natural creativity. When the ego dominates, we cannot see anything. As Jesus said, having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not, neither do they understand. So if you take three people looking at a house, let's say there's a buyer, and there's a seller, and there's the architect. None of them can actually see the house. Each one sees a different house, but none of them see the house. This ego is full of knowledge, knowledge such as I can do or I cannot do. And this knowledge is frozen knowledge, how things should be, the right time to get up, how long an egg should be boiled for. And likewise it has frozen feelings, so we react in the same way to the same stimuli. We become predictable. And we feel free when we change the patterns of our lives. So like when we go on our holidays. After a week on our holidays, however, there are now new patterns being established. So we keep going back to the same pizza joint, to the same bar with Sky Sports. Huh? This ego forms relationships with everything that comes its way. Everybody at the party. There's a relationship. The relationship may be they're not interesting relationship or they are very interesting relationship. Everybody walking down the street, we observe them and we relate to them in some way. And we then do not experience anything as it is, but only through the relationship. So, for example, can we really see our parents? Do we know the real person, or do we only know the parent? I've said this before, but you know, sometimes I see our children looking at my wife, and I realize that they know a mother, whereas I only know a wife. I don't know the mother. We project our ideas on people. So, for example, when English people talk, we might say it's too reserved or too formal. When Americans talk, it's too loud. When Italians talk, it's too fast. In fact, the Irish are the only ones who talk correctly. <laughs> and we turn sensations into concepts. So let's say we buy a bowl of soup, and it's just outstanding soup. That first spoonful, as the soup hits the tongue, this delicious burst of pleasure and you think, oh my God, that is the best soup I have ever had or is just like the soup my mother used to make. But then we're tasting the soup that our mother used to make and not the bowl of soup in front of us. And we end up not eating this soup, but as I said, the soup just like my mother's. And this soup is a concept, and not actually soup. So we enjoy comparison, and not actuality. 
The ego also is always living with intent, not living now. So it's never here, but always going somewhere. Do you know at times that you get to an airport and you have a bit of spare time and you sit down and you begin to look at people as they move around the airport? Do you ever notice the look on their faces? Nobody's actually in the airport. The bodies are wandering around like zombies. But everybody's somewhere else. Some of them are in Barbados. Some of them are with their bank manager. I shouldn't be going on this holiday. I can't afford it. The ego works for the outcome and thus misses out on the joy of the work itself. So compare a child, a very young child doing the washing up with an adult doing the washing up. The child enjoys washing up. We enjoy it when it's finished. We say, I'll be happy when I've done the last plate. But the child enjoys the actual washing up and sometimes will say, can I do it again? That thought hasn't crossed your mind for 40 years. <laughs> so our minds and hearts are filled by going somewhere, anticipating, striving, achieving, waiting for, and are rarely ever present here now. Energy is wasted in excessive activity, and then we do not have the fine energy available for creativity. So if we're waiting for someone in a coffee shop, we think, I just keep myself busy. So we judge everybody that walks by the coffee shop. Or we drink another cup of coffee that we don't really want, just to kill time. We make unnecessary phone calls. What are you doing now? You know, really profound phone calls like that. Or we read bits of the newspaper we're not particularly interested in. Gosh, Fred died. That's interesting. <laughs> the still person conserves and generates energy. We, on the other hand, tend to fill the stillness with activity. However, what about moment-to-moment -moment being? Simply being ourselves with no anticipation no finality, no fixed knowledge. We are so full of doing, doing, doing. And everything is dependent on me. Without me, nothing will happen, so I keep doing. And we're so full of knowing, particularly knowing better. But Socrates says that God alone is wise and that the wisdom of men is worth little or nothing. And when he said little, he was being generous. We don't believe him. We believe that our knowledge is so valuable. This ego is superficial, limited, changeable, and constantly in movement. And the depths of our being, where creativity lives, cannot be seen or accessed until the surface is calm. And so only when me, the ego, is gone, does inspiration arise. The ego is not creative because it is mechanical and not conscious. Its only choice is to be either repetitive or destructive. It gives the illusion 
of being creative by rearranging the order of things it knows. Like somebody who rearranges the furniture in the room rather than gets new furniture or breaks down the walls of the room. Egoism is a frozen state full of barriers and boundaries. Consciousness, however, flows and knows no barriers or boundaries. So to be creative, we need to be conscious. We should be conscious while doing everything, particularly the small everyday things. And to be creative, we need to be receptive. The ego, however, either projects itself, covering everything that is in front of us with its own image, or else it simply closes down and does not receive what is there. When we are egoless, then we are receptive, and we're open like the child. So consider how much we learned in the first two years of our life, and then consider how much we've learned in the last two years of our life. Why this remarkable decline in learning? And the reason is because we're no longer open, but are closed down, full of already knowing. Ordinarily, we see through the already known what the ego has already gathered. And this restricts our receptivity. Daydreaming always involves the ego and is constituted by aspiration and not inspiration. Daydreaming is full of hope and not fulfillment. When we are receptive, we get the message, the creative message, and then we take in the universe which is totally creative by nature. So to be creative is to be free of egoism and in tune with ourselves, because then we are in tune with the universe. When we try to create, it'll be ordinary. But when God is allowed to create through us, it will be extraordinary. Thus, creativity is nothing to do with our individual identity. Mozart said that he did not aim at any originality. This music simply flowed through him, unadulterated, pure and perfect. In truth, creativity is surrendering to a power that is not our own, a power that is beyond us. And when we surrender totally, then creativity happens. Then we get painting without a painter. When the painter re-emerges, the real painting stops. So creativity is an allowing, not a doing. To be creative, we stop doing it and get out of the way. And by getting out of the way, we cease to hinder its appearance. Allowing God to manifest through us is creativity. And when we, the ego, are not there, God is there. And only when we are not there can God be creative through us. So the song does not come from us, but through us. It is the song. It is the song that sings the bird. 
we are like a hollow flute by which the song is made manifest. But the song does not belong to the flute. To be a creative person, there's no need for fame or fortune. The greater our creativity, the longer it will take for people to recognize its greatness. Because when a truly creative person exists, ordinary people do not have the criteria to judge or recognize him or her by. There's no need for ambition or desire, because when we are creative, we are simply being ourselves. Ambition is always to do with getting somewhere, whereas creativity is when we are ourselves, when we have arrived. Being ourselves, what could we be ambitious about? Because all ambition is born of dissatisfaction with the now and desire for improvement or change in the future. The really great artist disappears while practicing his art. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the man who is his own master knocks in vain at the doors of poetry. The artists must be sacrificed to their art. Like the bees, they must put their lives into the sting they give. Now the really great artist knows that he has not created. The less the artist is present while the work is created, the more perfect it will be. The ego may be a perfectionist. However, the real artist is not aiming at perfection. He doesn't even think about it. And all of this may be summarized in the words of a music critic who said that the difference between Beethoven and Mozart was that Beethoven was concerned how his music would sound to God. And Mozart was concerned at how God's music would sound to the people. So how are we to remove the impediments which stop us from being naturally creative all the time. Well, there are two aspects. Our knowledge needs to be reappraised and enlarged, giving order and precision. And our being needs to be raised up or refined, and our latent possibilities realized. Both are necessary. When knowledge exceeds being, we know exactly what to do but there's an incapacity to enact it. When being exceeds knowledge, we have the strength to do everything, but we don't know what we should be doing. As regards our knowledge, it's not constant. We can know somebody for 20 years and then forget their name when they come around a corner. There's a need to leave all our preconceived notions and all our unexamined assumptions and all our so-called knowledge aside. And then afresh, we can study and practice what we are dedicating ourselves to. There is obviously a need for training and technique and discipline, but all this serves the creativity, not dominates or limits it. It provides the means to full expression, but does not curtail it. There is knowledge which clouds and dulls the mind or limits the mind. 
And there is knowledge which enlightens and expands the mind. And this is the true knowledge we must find. As regards our being, our being is not strong. Consider all the foolish mistakes we make, the broken resolutions, the things left undone. We need to enjoy a higher level of consciousness because with higher levels of consciousness comes increased potentiality or power. So if you take a low level of consciousness like sleep, there's very, very little that you can do while asleep. You can maybe turn over and perhaps scratch yourself. That's about it. If you rise to a higher level of consciousness like sleepwalking, well, maybe you can make yourself a banana sandwich or empty your wife's handbag of all its money or something like that. But there's very little else that you'll be able to achieve. Then if you wake up to the ordinary waking state, the state in which we live and die, then you can actually come to philosophy lectures, you can drive from A to B and not be there for the journey at all. But if you can rise to the highest level of consciousness, then all is possible and there are no limitations. Now where do we live ordinarily? Are we living our lives at our full potential? Do we see things as they really are? Well, at the higher levels of consciousness, our capacity to understand is without limit and our capacity to execute is without limit. At higher levels of consciousness, reason fills our minds and love our hearts and we become truly creative. So with regard to reason filling our minds, because of our accumulation of frozen knowledge, we've lost our innocence. And losing our innocence, we cannot see things as they are. With reason, we do see everything as one, not separate and not limited. We stop analysing and judging. And then we will become innocent again and start seeing everything as it is. So do not start with conclusions, but be open and empty, empty of the already known. Patterns of behaviour go, and once more we become spontaneous, fresh and enthusiastic. Life then is not an accumulation of knowledge, but the retention of innocence. And so the question for you and me is, have you retained your innocence or lost it in growing old? With innocence we will meet people and events as if for the first time. We will paint from the inside of the object or the person and not the outside. And then the painting is not confined to the form of the object of the person, but contains the intention of the soul of what we are painting. Creativity means freedom, freedom from our mind, freedom from knowledge, freedom from prejudice. Life should remain an inquiry until the day we die. And then we will be like Socrates, we will know nothing at all. And knowing nothing, we should be totally creative. When we drop the known, then real intelligence can operate. As the Zen story says, 
If our cup is full, we cannot be taught. So we must first empty our cup and then we are truly full, full of potentiality. When we want to paint, then we use a blank canvas. In the same way, our minds must be blank. That is free of the unknown. And then we experience at a different level, listening shifts, and like on the street or at a party, we hear all the sounds at once. And we hear the emotional content and understand the meaning from the sounds and not just the words. And with love in our hearts, there arises acceptance. Otherwise, we cannot see but simply react. With acceptance comes observation and with observation, understanding arises. And with understanding, there is a response absolutely appropriate to the need of the moment. And then events are allowed to come to us. So don't look at the flower. Let it look at you. Let the poem in and unfold within us. And then it works on us just like medicine without anything being added to it by us. In this state, there is appreciation of life and people and not reaction to life and people. We stop waiting or anticipating and when we stop, then we're open. We receive what is there rather than project ourselves onto it. And we sometimes think it is necessary to suffer if we wish to be a really great artist. But when the act of creativity is taking place, there's no suffering. Creativity is the release from suffering. And part of the suffering of the artist is the realization that he is trying to give form to that which is formless. And this frustration can cause suffering for the mind of the artist. He realizes that what he has created is at best only an approximation of the real. So stillness is the key and not suffering. People try to give up an activity by taking up another one. So people try to stop eating by chewing gum or relaxing by going to the gym. But we need to learn to be still and not swap activities. And people can be so active nowadays, lazy in body but active in mind, so that they are overweight in body and stressed in mind. So see if you can have no thoughts for five minutes. And if that's impossible, then try three minutes. If that's impossible, can you be free of thoughts for one minute? Or even 30 seconds? Because only in the absence of thinking will we be creative. For we cannot think ourselves into creativity. Stillness is being ourselves, and when we are still within... We can be active or inactive externally. By giving ourselves totally to the activity, we forget ourselves in the activity. And this is why people love sports so much. Because fully participating in the activity, they forget their egos. 
The need, however, is not just to forget our egos, but to remember our true self. And this we do in stillness. So let activity fall away. Don't try to stop it, just be aware of it. Stillness is not a new activity, it's the absence of activity. Now, Ralph Waldo Emerson laid out about eight very simple practical aids to help you live an inspired life. He said the first thing that is important is that you enjoy good health. And he said sleep is the condition of health. So the artist or creative person needs to sleep well. And the artist must be able to escape from his cares and fears. He needs food and warmth, etc., etc. And thus the need for patrons. You can judge how civilized a society is by the degree to which it supports its artists. Worry about money either destroys the creative spirit or commercializes it. The second thing necessary in order to be creative is to get secular rest. I, you need to get away. So the teacher was always granted long, long holidays. Not so that he could get a tan or drink Bacardi and Coke, but so that he could refresh himself. And having refreshed himself fully, then he could use the balance of those holidays to refresh and expand his knowledge of his subject. The third factor is to develop willpower. Because to be creative, what is required is perseverance and endurance and fidelity and vigilance. It is said that creativity is 90% sweat and 10% creativity. For creativity, there is a need for the peaceful atmosphere. So if you really want to be creative, then rise early in the morning. This is when you get your best ideas. Because then the world is quiet. And also relieve the mind from the jangle of affairs by having an hour of solitude every day. Because in that hour of solitude every day, you can meet your own mind. Also enjoy solitary converse with nature. Connect with the ripples in the water, the clouds in the sky, the air or wind on the face, the leaves underfoot. Sixthly, frequently go away from home. Because there are many demands at home, whereas in a hotel or somewhere else, there are no hours to keep and no visits to make. However, at home, we remember the wants of the family and the job, etc., etc. In the home, the mind is filled with all these thoughts. Novelty, surprise, change of scene, refresh the artist, refresh all of us. And the seventh factor is good conversation. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, For in discourse with a friend, our thought, hitherto wrapped in our consciousness, detaches itself and allows it to be seen as a thought in a manner as new and entertaining to us 
as our companion. For provocation of thought, we use ourselves and use others. And then he says this most beautiful thing. Some thoughts take two to find. We must be warmed by the fire of sympathy to be brought into the right conditions and angles of vision. And the last factor that Ralph Waldo Emerson recommends is he said, read scripture and the words of the wise and the words of great minds. He says, not fiction and newspapers and magazines, but Plato and Plotinus and the Bible and Shakespeare and Chaucer and Milton and Ovid and the Iliad. If we study transformative ideas, then we will be transformed. So to finish, it is necessary to leave the world of the known and seek the unknown. So we need to make our lives lives of constant inquiry. Einstein writes, The fairest thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. He who knows it not and can no longer wonder, no longer feel amazement, is as good as dead, a snuffed out candle. It was the experience of mystery, even if mixed with fear, that engendered religion, a knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate, of the manifestations of the profoundest reason, the most radiant beauty, which are only accessible to our reason in the most elementary forms. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitutes the truly religious attitude. In this sense alone, I am a deeply religious man. Einstein said elsewhere that it is either all a miracle or none of it is a miracle. And to consider it all as a miracle is the truly creative attitude. Secondly, we need to raise the level of our being. We do not let our minds come to rest. That is why they are not creative. And there is nothing greater than meditation to bring the mind to the deepest of rest. It connects us with the source of our being and that source is totally creative. That source has brought forth the whole universe. So if man wishes to be truly creative, he should meditate. The Shankaracharya says, in every aspect of life there is a dance. For the creator started it with a sound and a dance to manifest the bliss. In all activities of schoolwork, let this beautiful rhythm of the eternal dance be manifested. Now we each have a song to sing and a dance to dance. It's known as our life. Everybody has come into this world with a specific destiny. Everybody has something to fulfill, some message to be delivered, some work to be completed. We're not here by accident. Our lives have meaning and there is a real and fundamental purpose to them. 
The universe intends to manifest something through each one of us. So let each of our lives be truly creative and then we will not die with a song still inside of us. And that's the end of the talk. So, thank you. What questions would you like to ask? First of all, I enjoyed your talk and uh, found myself singing more or less off the same hymn sheet. One thing that did disturb me a bit, you didn't seem to have much time for daydreaming. Yes. It's about hope and not fulfillment, but I would always have thought that daydreaming was about the beginnings of the imagination and possibility. Yes. I know we were all taught as children at school, you know, you'll never get anywhere, you're a dreamer. But I would see it has a place. Well, I think it's necessary to be very precise about the use of words. Daydreaming, as it is defined in philosophy, is where one loses control of the mind. It's not directed towards something. It wanders into a topic and then goes all over the place and there's no control over what you're actually dreaming about and when it will come to an end. That is just a meandering through an either pleasant or unpleasant fog in the mind. Vision is a different matter altogether. This is where you look deeply into the present moment and can see the future potentiality. An historical example would be Marsilio Ficino, who is said to be the philosophical father of the Italian Renaissance. I think it was Cosimo de' Medici had a doctor called Ficino, who was Marsilio Ficino's father, a medical doctor. And when the little boy Marsilio Ficino was, you know, three or four, he was brought to see Cosimo de' Medici. And Cosimo de' Medici looked at the boy and looked at the father and said to the father, you heal men's bodies, but he will heal men's souls which is a remarkable insight because he became the greatest philosopher of his time. So there is where you look at the acorn and you see an oak tree in its potential. That's vision and that is excellent. That is absolutely excellent. But daydreaming is when I make up a daydream. You're on the bus and you see a little boy with a school satchel on his back and it reminds you of a friend of yours who used to have a school satchel like that 40 years ago. And the last time you met him, he was going to Egypt, where the pyramids are. And then three seconds later, you're considering whether it's right to use slave labor to build pyramids. Now, it started off with a satchel on a bus. <laughs> That's daydreaming, as is meant in philosophy. It never leads anywhere. No daydreaming of winning Wimbledon has ever led to a, a Wimbledon champion. But people can have a vision for winning Wimbledon. And then they dedicate their lives to the fulfillment of that vision. And then that's excellent. So everybody should have a vision for their lives and then dedicate themselves to it. But daydreaming about what I would do if, you know, if I looked like Brad Pitt or I could sing like Pavarotti, 
doesn't do anything. Does that help differentiate between the two? When you say that, well, you, you see the boy, the satchel or something, and then he sort of disappears, but that could equally be the beginning of a story in your mind if you were a writer or a, a poet or whatever. It could be, but the trouble about daydreaming is that it's not based on a reality. You see, when you're looking at an acorn, that is a current reality. There is an acorn in your hand, but you can see possibilities for it, which are not yet manifest. A daydream is, if I was the Secretary General of the United Nations, what would I be saying to Saddam Hussein type of thing? It has no essence of reality. It's just imagination. And it doesn't lead to action. So there has to be a kernel of reality. Again, if I may take it from an inventive point of view, James Watt, if you remember, he invented the steam engine. What happened to him was he was sitting in his mother's house. He saw the lid of the kettle rising with the steam. And he conceived there and then the possibility of trapping that power and creating the steam engine. But he had to really connect with the lid of the kettle. You and I have seen many lids of kettles and no inspiration has come. That's the difference between the two. One man really connects and then something amazing happens. All sorts of future possibilities as yet unknown present themselves in the mind. The rest of us think we're just looking at the lid of a kettle. That's how you would differentiate it anyway. Okay, very good. Hi there, I really appreciated your talk and you know there was a lot in it. I liked creativity, it can be such a vague sort yeah. of vacuum to be coming from and you were saying there about daydreaming and if I wanted to have a creative life I need to know that vision. You said the creative side is not ambition. So where is that crossover point where I have the vision and I stay away from ego to be creative? I can't prove this to you, but I think if it happens to you, you'll recognize it. Every one of us has a destiny. We have a calling, a vocation. We came into this world for a reason. And each one of us has something to do, as was said, a song to sing or a dance to dance. Believe it or not, you are being called to that all the time. From the moment you were born, that sound has been calling inside of you. But you and I, our minds are so busy, and our hearts not really open and happy, we're making so much noise inside of ourselves that we can't hear this calling. And we start looking outside of ourselves, people start telling us what we should do. You should become an engineer or you get a, a guidance counsellor. You have an inbuilt guidance counsellor which is telling you what you should give your life to and what you were designed for. So Pavarotti was not designed to be a ballet dancer. <laughs> right? That is obvious. Right? But he was designed to sing. You were designed for something. So the best way is for you to become very, very still. Very, very still and very, very open. And if you practice that, you will hear your calling. And when you hear it, you will know. Sometimes you go to a shop looking for an article of clothing. Let's say it's a suit. And you really want to get a nice suit. 
And lo and behold, the first suit you put on, it just fits perfectly. And you say, that's it. And the shop assistant says, no, we've got plenty more suits. And you say, no, this is it. Do you recognise that when that happens? Now, there are other times when you're looking for a suit. You go in. You don't really find what you're looking for, but you narrow it down. I'll either have the blue one or the grey one, but it's, neither of them are exactly what you're looking for. And you're running out of time. So you think, oh, for God's sake, right, I have the blue one. Because the grey one makes me look old. Anyway, you buy the blue one. For the next six months, you see people looking fantastic in grey suits. They don't look old, they look sophisticated <laughs> and intelligent. And you simply look fat in your blue suit. Your heart wasn't settled and you're still hungry or still searching. Now, if you look into the eyes of most adults, what there is, is that restlessness still in their eyes. Because they still, in the words of the U2 song, they still haven't found what they're looking for. When a person truly falls in love, in that aspect of their lives, they come completely to rest. Because the heart is satisfied. I have found the person I wish to share my life with. Well, we need to find it with regard to our entire life. That's really what your vision is. When people say, I have a vision for my life, and it is a true vision, it's not, I just want to be better than everybody else, or I want to be a billionaire, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not really a vision. But when people really have a vision, what it is, they have connected somehow with that inner voice, which is telling them why they came into this world. You came into this world for a particular reason. It wasn't to eat porridge. It was much more glorious. You wouldn't bother lying in a womb for nine months for porridge and a few other things. You came for a particular expression of greatness. I don't mean that you'll be world famous now. That may or may not happen. And it's not necessary. But you came for something to express yourself in a way that would satisfy your heart. That your heart could come to rest and say, I am content with myself. And the key is this stillness. Because it's a quiet voice. It doesn't shout at you. It doesn't demand that you do anything. You have free will, so you can deny it if you want to. The vast majority of mankind either denies it or gets distracted from it. Gets distracted by the desire to earn money or have prestige or security or an inflation-proof pension or something like that. But you have to be really brave and courageous. While you will know your destiny, you won't be able to precisely say where it will take you. And it will normally be a lot bigger than you conceive yourself to be. So you'll be frightened by it and you'll think, my God, this is going to demand all of me. And it's going to invoke a much bigger responsibility. And what's most important is not to be afraid to shine. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like I have a bit more meditating to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. But let me say this. Searching for your keys when you can't remember where you put them down is a very frustrating experience. The search for your destiny, in my experience, is not frustrating. It's just so interesting. So interesting to discover, well, what is this body, mind and heart for? In what will it find its satisfaction? 
In what way does it want to reveal itself to the world or express itself to the world? So, even if it takes a long while, it's one of these marvellous journeys where you enjoy the journey as well as the destination. But it is important that you are looking. Most people are somewhere else. You are being told a million times what it is. Are you married or do you have children? I have a child, yeah. Yeah. And what age is the child? Four and a half. Four and a half, right. Well, that child... I'm not going to demand of you that you should have been able to read its heart 30 seconds after conception and for the next nine months. It can be done, but anyway, that's another matter. But after it is born, in the way it expresses itself, in what it shows its interests in, in everything, it's telling you what its destiny is. In the animals it loves, in the colours it likes, in which sport it is attracted to. It's always telling you, this is me, this is me. And if you really look as a still parent, and you don't superimpose on, I want it to be a, a doctor or a surgeon, but you're actually looking, and you're watching, is it a boy or a girl? Girl. Right? You're watching this little girl. She's revealing herself to you in everything she does, and how she speaks, everything. If you watch her, you can actually look deep into her heart and see her destiny. And then when you do see it, and it's a fantastic thing if you can see it, then what you do is you begin to present to her that which will help her fulfill her destiny. So you surround her with those things. So if her destiny was to be a doctor or something like that, you might start to buy her books about the greatest doctors that have ever lived. Doctors that lived inspiring lives. You feed that destiny so that it grows strong and you encourage her to remain true to it. And she'll recognize it. And it won't be you turning her into a doctor when she should have been an engineer or whatever. You can give her the confidence. And this is the most important thing. A lot of people have to decide at 16, 17 and 18 what career they're going to choose. It's most important that they do with absolute confidence. And as I said, not distracted by whether it's a university course or there's no course. It's not relevant whether people go to university or not, or whether they have letters after their name, or whether they're professionals. All this stuff is completely irrelevant. What is important is that they are answering their heart's desire. The way Oscar Wilde put it, in a different context and very humorously, he said, if you marry a woman for her money, you will earn every penny of it. <laughs> and if you've ever been in a relationship where there wasn't love, it is hard, hard, hard work. If you work for money, you'll earn every penny of it. But if you work at what you love, you'll never work again. It won't be work. And you will get out of your bed in the morning full of enthusiasm to have another go at whatever it is. Rather than wishing a minor illness on yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> look how people look forward to retiring. Such a pity. It means they haven't found what's in their heart. The way the Shankracharya says it, a wrestler for a phase in his life, will love to wrestle. And then the body will become too old to be an active wrestler. And then he will want to train other wrestlers. 
He will want to pass on what he knows, and that will still give him great joy, training somebody to be an excellent wrestler. Even that second phase will come to an end, and then he'd become a spectator, and he'd go to many, many bouts and still enjoy it. That's the way. When you find something that fills your heart, you'll always find a way to participate in it. And you wouldn't even dream of retiring in the sense of abandoning. Is that okay? Yes, yeah. very good. Yeah, okay. Uh, you mentioned there that a creative person wouldn't be recognized in their own time and that the people wouldn't have the capacity to recognize them. Could yes. you just explain more about that, please? When I say a creator, I mean a truly great. The truly great is ahead, is ahead of the world. They're an advanced being in terms of music or art or mathematics or something like that. So because they're ahead of everybody, people cannot evaluate them. Would you not recognize their good works or their deeds? Or you can't. They're too far ahead of you. Let's say you've only got five words of French and somebody comes up to you and speaks fluent French to you, you can't understand them. They're too far ahead of you. And what use are they then? Their use is later. Jesus was ahead of the people that he came to. So they had to kill him. This is why all the greats are always killed. Because they're not recognized for their greatness. So what's the purpose? Because you get a message that lasts thousands and thousands of years and inspires mankind. So Socrates had to be killed. Christ was crucified. They're ahead. The world can't hear the message. The fact that 12 could hear, or a few more than 12, that was all they could hear. The church was tiny for hundreds of years, the Christian church. It takes a while before mankind catches up with these great, great, great people. And it happens. A lot of great artists die in abject poverty. And it's a hundred years later, people say, wasn't he the greatest artist that the world ever put breath into? So, that's the way it is. Next time your wife says she doesn't understand you, you just tell her, you don't know how great I am. <laughs> so, Thank you. <laughs> you often find it in business as well. Somebody might invent something and the powers to be say no we can't see any potentiality in that and the person has to break away and start their own organization or the world doesn't recognize them it's picked up later we're always out of sync with the ideas so and I'm not saying these were great ideas ideas about communism didn't flourish initially it was 50 years later if you want to know what the world is going to be like in 50 years time then look at what people are being taught in universities today it's about 50 years out of sync so whatever people are being taught today they will be the ideas that will pervade society in about 50 years time that's the way it is uh, do you not think we've caught up with ourselves a bit more now because Look at so a lot of great artists that are recognised in their time within the last kind of century or whatever. I mean, you know, even nowadays, and even writers and philosophers that are very well recognised now, Eckhart Tolle, Picasso, whatever you can name, quite a lot. I, it's a little bit behind the time, maybe the whole concept of us not being enlightened within our times and understanding. I think it's becoming much faster now with technology and everything. And the other thing is, 
fully enlightened highest, the highest level of creativity or the, li the list that you had there one of the things was to have a patron so which I don't think completely really works in this time oh absolutely oh totally works. oh it works but it's not just not that ready available oh it is is it? okay absolutely well, well, I, well I'll answer that bit first of all and then I'll get back to your first point what you have to do if you want a patron you have to melt his or her heart it's not a matter of demanding it or grabbing it or begging. You have to melt their heart where they want to give it to you. Where it satisfies them. The giving is what satisfies them. That generosity is called out of them by either the purity of the intention or the perfection of the work or the need in the world or whatever it is. What Coretta Scott King Jr., who was the widow of Martin Luther King Jr., said, she says, if you work for a cause greater than yourself, you'll never be alone. And Martin Luther King Jr. is the absolute proof of that. And so is Mandela and so was Gandhi and all these people. They never had to worry about where the money was coming from. They melted the hearts of so many people and the support came from everywhere. So that's what you need to do. Seriously, that's what you need to do. So that was the second bit. Now, the first bit you said about uh, the world catching up. Yeah, I don't want to be a depressive or negative. You see, when we say something like, we look at Eckhart Tolle, and Eckhart Tolle's work is outstanding, whatever shout it out, is outstanding, and it has moved lots of people. But what percentage of people? Has it changed the political climate? Has it improved the economic climate? Is there less racial discrimination in the world today? Have we cured that one? Have we brought war to an end? It's inspired lots of individual people, but it is yet to move society. And that's what I mean. Now, it's outstanding. It's outstanding, and there are lots of outstanding works. And maybe in 50 years' time, his ideas, which are valued by 1% of the population, might now be valued by 50%. And then you will see real change. But that's what we want to see, is real, real change, where prosperity and justice flourish in society throughout the world. There isn't a privileged part of the world and an underprivileged part. Then we will know that great philosophic ideas have embedded themselves into society. Is, is fair, that right? Fair answer, yeah. yeah. Okay. But at the same time, to be fair, it is really encouraging that the wisdom of the East is finally coming to the West. A man called Swami Vivekananda who was a great, great Indian sage. And he came to England and the United States about 1890 or 1896 to the early part of the next century. And what he said was, the West has a fantastic energy of efficiency and making things happen. But he says, the West knows how to be active, but doesn't know how to be still. And he says, the East knows how to be still, but doesn't know how to be active. And he said, what we need is the marriage of East and West. And he said, when the Western world can learn to be still, and the Eastern world can learn to be efficient, then the world will be a glorious place. And I think he's absolutely right. There was only one or two before him, but since him, there has been an incredible flow of the sages of the East to the West. So I do have hope. 
I can't believe that all this wisdom flowing from the East into the West will not flourish. But I think that I could have departed by then. <laughs> Unless I'm really going to live very long. But I think it's fantastically encouraging because it does show that the Western mind is open to a new influence. And if I can speak very positively, ordinarily when we think of an uplifting consciousness or an uplifting society, we might think historically of the Italian Renaissance because it's the closest one to us. There was this tremendous uplift in music and art and science. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at history, since 500 BC, there has been something like six or seven renaissances in Europe, albeit we're really only familiar with one of them. In fact, the leading light of one of the renaissances was an Irishman, was John Scotus in the court of King Charles the Bald of France. So we can claim that one. But anyway, there have been about five or six renaissances. Every renaissance in the Western world in the last two and a half thousand years has come into being because of the study of the works of Plato. It's like a foreign force coming in and impregnating as a society. So then you get a new birth. And interestingly enough, it is said, for those who study cycles, that renaissances last 500 years. And if you accept that, then we are at the end of the Italian Renaissance. Which means that we're at the beginning of the next one. The next one is about to, to come, where you will get this uplift in consciousness. Again, if it's any encouragement to you, I asked Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, about, about this. And he said that there will be a new Renaissance. He didn't say when, he said there will be a new one. And he said, just as the previous one was based on three things, the next one will also be based on three things. So the three of the last were, were music, art, and science. He said the next one will be based on law, economics, and language. And if you look at the world today, there is a real need for understanding of true economics. I mean, we are in great, great danger of blowing it economically. The whole world is. This excessive greed is horrendous. So, if there was an uplift in consciousness with regard to economics, that man would live a measured, healthy life, that would be fantastic. And then law, so that all the appalling injustices that pervade the world, if they could be minimized or eliminated. And then language, that we could learn to communicate so that we understood each other. I don't mean that we all speak English, but that we actually understand that language is uplifted. So, that may come in the next 50 years, or the beginning of it may come in the next 50 years. Again, just to say this to you, and I'm not saying that the school has this role, but every time there has been a new renaissance, there have been schools of philosophy. They come and then they take to these, let's say maybe it's like Plato or something like that, and then you get this flourishing. So, Marsilio Ficino, who is said to be the philosophical father of the Italian Renaissance, had a school of philosophy. Michelangelo attended it. So, so did some of the great, great artists and musicians of that time. They attended his school and studied the works of Plato. So it's very encouraging. Just going to see if there's a Michelangelo in the room here. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly, exactly, absolutely.
might not be able to recognize his genius as well. <laughs> yes, anybody else? Yes, this lady here. Thank you. I really enjoyed your talk this evening. You referred a lot to the great artists, yes. and I'm just wondering, they had to achieve this higher level of consciousness to allow their creativity. And sometimes in thinking of the artists, one might think of their genius as in painting or in music or whatever. And I'm wondering, was the real genius in them being able to achieve this higher level of consciousness? And did they have to work as hard to get there as we might in trying to get there? Or did it come easier for them to get to that level? You can't generalize. It's like this. Some people are naturally funny and other people have to work hard to have any sense of humor. Some people at birth it's very obvious that they enjoy a high level of consciousness. Other people have to work hard at it. But it is accessible to all. That's the first thing. Whether you and I have to work hard or not is not relevant. The point about it is you and I can enjoy the highest levels of consciousness. For those that don't have it, let's call it naturally, then there are techniques which the great sages have developed. One of them is meditation. So you can take any human being, I don't care how so-called dull they are, and that's a terrible way of describing people, but I don't care how dull they are, if they meditate, they will become brighter and brighter and brighter. We think that things like IQ is fixed. This is absolute rubbish. You have access to all knowledge. It's a bit like if you have a computer, you can get onto the internet. So all you need is that connection. And Ralph Waldo Emerson, who wrote it 150 years ago, he said there is one mind. A man has an inlet to all of that mind. So what Plato has thought, he may think. You think that you have an individual mind, and I think I have this little individual mind. But there aren't 6.9 billion individual minds. There's one universal mind in which there is all knowledge, and we all have a connection. Some of us have very good Wi-Fi, some of us have very poor reception, some of us have a faulty connection, it's only intermittent. We have moments of genius, and then we're as dull as dishwater for a long time. The idea is to make that connection full and strong. Prayer does it. Meditation does it, and there are other techniques which will support it. But the most powerful and simplest and accessible for everybody is meditation. Because meditation is only relatively new in the West, i.e. in the last 50 years, we can't think of it as being either unusual people or remarkable people meditating. But meditation is for all of mankind. It is such an easy technique. You don't have to be particularly intelligent to meditate which is a great encouragement to those who attend the School of Philosophy. <laughs> you don't even have to be particularly nice, which is also a great encouragement to those who attend the School of Philosophy. You simply have to be willing. It's a bit like this. Say you had certain clothing, and you leave the clothing to soak in water. You don't actually have to do anything. The water will work on the dirt, and slowly but surely separate the dirt from the clothing. And meditation is like taking a mental and emotional bath so that your mind is cleared and your heart, let's call it, purified. So this would be the equivalent of, let's say in your house the windows were never cleaned 
and it's a sunny day. But because the windows are so dirty, only a certain amount of the sun can get into your family room. You don't have to emigrate to Portugal. All you have to do is clean the windows. If you clean the windows, the sunshine in all its power will pour into your family room. Well, we are like people with dirty windows. So this universal mind or this universal consciousness cannot pour into us and through us with all its power. It's been absorbed by the dirt or the agitation. Again, and these are very broad statements, but the tendency in the West is in order to understand, you think. We try to think our way through problems. In the East, the idea is not to use your mind. Just let your mind become very, very still. And in that stillness, the knowledge arises. Whereas we try to agitate our way through problems. So we have brainstorming sessions. I mean, this is an incredibly violent way to... Can you imagine brainstorming something? Uh, again, I've told this story before. It was a particular um, board of directors that I was a director of, and I came to a meeting very, very late. It was about two hours late, which was horrendously late, but anyway, I came, and in those days, people smoked an awful lot, so when I came into the room, and there was none of the windows open, there was about two feet of smoke down from the ceiling, and everybody's very agitated, and they're very agitated with me for being two hours late, and they're also very agitated because they've been discussing something for about two hours, and they couldn't come up with a business solution to this situation. So having finally vented their anger on me and calmed down and then said to me, look, we've been arguing about this for two hours, what do you think? And I said, well, tell me about it. So the man relayed the situation to me in, let's say, ten minutes. As he spoke the final word of his description of the problem, I said, well, the solution is X. And he said, no, no, no. He said, we want you to think about it. <laughs> so I said, okay, hang on a second. I said, the answer is still X. But they had been trying to think their way through it. Now, the advantage to me in that situation was that I wasn't agitated, that I hadn't got engrossed in it. I simply heard the problem. Because the mind was relatively still compared to theirs, the solution just presented itself. That's the key, to access this stillness of mind. If somebody was to describe the mind of Shamal Hall, Shamal Hall is a very active mind. So there's a lot of energy in it. I know people who have much stiller minds, or who are born with much stiller minds than Shamal Hall. So for Shamal Hall, for meditation to become deep and fruitful took longer than it took for other people. But it definitely does. You will be astounded by what your mind presents when you learn to access that stillness. So it is available to you. All knowledge is available to you. Again, you, you don't have to accept this, but I'll tell you what the Shankaracharya says. He says, it's not that knowledge is available to you from outside. All knowledge is inscribed in the hearts of every human being. So you know everything. You just don't know how to access it. That's all. You know those times when you say, Oh, now I see. Now I understand. It's not new knowledge. It's like an old memory. 
It's like you think, oh. It's like you had forgotten and now you've remembered again. And that's the truth. Man is made in the image of God, so he couldn't have been made thick. <laughs> it wouldn't make sense to make him thick. If God is the source of all wisdom and man is made in the image of God, then man is all wise. He's a reflection of all that wisdom. But it's become covered over and inaccessible due to this agitation and prejudice and poor use of mind and heart. So all that man has to do is clean up his own act and then he has access to everything. So that's it. Is that alright? Yeah. In a list of impediments to creativity, would you include our system of education? Absolutely. The system of education nowadays is incredibly low grade, without getting too negative about the whole thing. The primary purpose of education today now seems to be to produce workers for an economy. So we're interested in producing accountants or engineers or all this sort of stuff. This is dreadful. This is a dreadful thing to do to a beautiful little human being. The first thing to do is to educate him to be a human being and then try and help him discover how he wishes to express his humanity. But you would never reduce a human being to an accountant. Or even worse, a solicitor. <laughs> That's just an awful thing to do to a great human being. I'll just give you an example. This man, Swami Vivekananda, that I mentioned, what he said is that all education is concentration. It is not filling the mind with information. He said, what you do is you teach the young being to concentrate and then it can learn at will. Now, would you like to be able to do that, to learn at will? Anyway, Swami Vivekananda, there's a famous incident about him where he was telling this to his disciples and about a week previously, the Encyclopedia Britannica had been sent to the ashram, which is a monastery. And Swami Vivekananda had read eight volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica in about five days. So, that's the first thing. They decided to test him. Well, had he got a concentrated mind? Could his mind concentrate? So they got out the eight volumes and they asked him questions at random. And he answered every one of them. And he said, that's concentration. Just so you get the sense of it. Let's say we take light, like a light bulb, and we allow it diffuses as it is. What it does, it warms the room and throws a bit of light into the room. But let's say we turn it into a, a really narrow, narrow, narrow laser beam. Then it'll burn through steel. Exactly the same light. By concentrating it, it becomes all-powerful. Now, our minds are like, I'm afraid, light bulbs. Most of them about 40 watts, maybe 25 watts. <laughs> Our minds are very diffused. They're very, very diffused. What we have to learn is to get that mind so that 100% of the mind is on the point in question. And then we will penetrate. I'm going to assume you can drive a car. If you go back 10 or 15 years ago, the Ferrari ever rang you up and said, look, we'd like you to drive for us and it's 30 million dollars per annum. But they did pay Michael Schumacher 30 million dollars per annum to drive the Ferrari. Why? Because when you're driving a car, there's only a part of your humanity driving. 
And when Michael Schumacher was driving the car, there was a lot more of his humanity there, which made him into a world-class driver. If we could actually apply our minds, supported fully by our hearts, to anything, we could achieve everything. Absolutely everything. There is nothing you could not do. Nothing at all. Our education is so low grade. It's mainly memorizing and information and things like that. But it doesn't teach reason. The ability to penetrate and discover universal laws. It's a real tragedy. I'll just tell you a, a nice story about Swami Vivekananda. He was a very arrogant young man and he came across a man called Ramakrishna who is said to be one of the great saints of India. Died around 1860, 1870, sometime around that. Ramakrishna was an outstanding but totally uneducated man. Ramakrishna could barely write his name. So he was illiterate. He also hated mathematics. He says, it gives me a headache, all these numbers. So a completely uneducated man. And then you have Vivekananda with this incredible mind. But Ramakrishna is the sage and Vivekananda is the young pup. Vivekananda hears about Ramakrishna and goes to see him, but is very, very disrespectful to him. Basically, he shouts at Ramakrishna and says to him, I hear that you have met God. Is that true? In a very arrogant voice. And Ramakrishna says, yes, I have. And he says, how did you see him? He says, just as I see you in front of me right now. And Vivekananda says, can you show him to me? He says, yes, I can show God to you. He says, follow me. So he brings him up to this pond or lake and he asks him to take a swim. He gets into the water and he says to Vivekananda, now just start swimming. Vivekananda starts to swim and Ramakrishna grabs him from behind and pushes his head under the water and keeps his head under the water for, let's say, two minutes. And eventually, uh, Vivekananda breaks free and his head comes above the water and his eyes are bulging and he's gasping for air. And Ramakrishna says to him, when you wish to see God with the same intensity, then you will. <laughs> and that melted the heart of Vivekananda and he became Ramakrishna's greatest disciple. And Ramakrishna stayed in Calcutta and eventually died. And Vivekananda transversed the whole world, spreading this incredible message of Ramakrishna. He was a fantastic man. After I joined the School of Philosophy, he was one of the first of the Indian sages I came across. And I fell in love with this man. And there's a nine-volume set of his works, which I ate from cover to cover. Because <laughs> it was just so fantastic. He is a very rational sort of Western mind, very Platonic or Socratic mind. So albeit there is this Eastern terminology, he's very, very accessible to the Western mind. And I believe very appealing to people who have been educated in the West. The following question is not very audible, but the gist of the question is that if space, stillness, time by ourselves are necessary to removing the blocks to creativity, what about the great rock and roll bands, for example Pink Floyd or Fleetwood Mac, who often seem to be in turmoil, at war with each other, drugs involved, and lack of sleep? How do you square that with the need for stillness? 
sounds, and it seems to conflict with, say, I think of some great rock and roll albums, and the bands or the artists that they come through often they seem to be in the turmoil over each other, drugs and bombs, the lack of sleep, everything is kind of stillness. All the greats. Right. Okay. Well, there's a couple of aspects to that. First of all, there obviously were all these factors, but in the moment of creativity, there is stillness. In the moment. What they may have enjoyed is the tremendous contrast between the excess or the suffering or the lack of stillness and then the moment of stillness. It's like if you're carrying a very heavy suitcase and then you put it down, there is an instant rush of bliss <laughs> as you're relieved from carrying it. So maybe that were there. That's one aspect. The second thing is imagine how magnificent the albums and the music would have been <laughs> if they had access to stillness. That's the other possibility. Even if you classify or many classify this music as great, perhaps it could have been even greater still had it arisen from stillness. And the third factor is that which is great lasts a long, long time. So there were many composers at the time of Mozart, and we don't even know their names now. If you're around in 250 years' time, and people are listening to Pink Floyd's music, well then we may be able to ascribe real greatness to their music. The last thing is this. It does make sense, I think, in reason, that if you can get to the source, you get to all. So, like, if you can get to the ocean as opposed to a pond, there's greater potentiality because the ocean is the source of all water. In terms of music, what is the source of sound? And it's very obvious that it's silence. All sound arises from silence and it returns to silence. So, if you could get to the silence or the stillness, you would get to that place before sounds take a form. You'd be like Michelangelo looking at that great big marble block and all shapes are there. And from all those shapes you choose David and release David. So the possibility is that if you can get behind the forms, you will get to the formless, to the source of all, where there is limitless potentiality where things have not become limited yet, and then who knows what might emerge. So that's the possibility. Yeah, I think it was Pascal who said that half, at least, of the problems of the world are there because the human person can fit quietly in the room alone without distraction from fire. And it makes me think, why our nature has to be more open to this, more able to do it, more adaptable to that, to stillness and silence, and 
and we're looking at what we've got from the young people and technology. It might find it difficult today just to say, I won't look at the emails, I won't turn on the mobile, you know. What's my second? I'll answer the second bit first, if I may. It is going to be an increasing problem in the world today. If you go back about 150 years ago, when people like Ralph Waldo Emerson were giving talks, there were no seating in these public halls around America. People would stand to listen to him speak for up to three hours. Nowadays, a politician gives sound bites because people cannot attend for any length of time. The human mind is becoming weaker and weaker, and the weaker it becomes, the more stimulus it needs. So we need to be very careful about the gadgets that we're inventing and what are they developing in the mind and what are they not developing. Well, that's one aspect. Well, you said, well, why is the human mind like this? And say, in regard to yourself and myself, I'm going to talk about two aspects of the human mind. And one is a moving part and the other is a still part. One is active and the other is reflective or contemplative. And it operates in stillness and the other operates in movement. Our education nowadays is primarily geared towards the development of the moving one. So that we now educate people so that they're filled with information. Whereas the other part of the mind, which operates in stillness, is where you get decisiveness and insight and strength and all these sort of things. If we are to gain strong minds, that we can say to the mind, attend, and it will attend, we need to develop this aspect of the mind. And our education really doesn't do it, and society doesn't feed it in any way. So there needs to be a real look at the mind. As regards the body, we will acknowledge that the body has limbs, so it's definitely got a head and ears and legs and arms, and we recognize that they're different but we tend not to see the mind as having mental limbs. And there is a part of the mind which thinks. But there's another part of the mind which reasons. And the thinking mind is always in movement, and the reasoning mind works best when it is absolutely still. So what is required in our parenting and in our education and then in society at large is to develop this reasoning part of the mind that mind which can hear the truth or the falsehood in something. And it does that from stillness. If there was a blackboard here and I drew a circle on the board, instantaneously there's a part of your mind which says that's not a perfect circle. That part of your mind holds the knowledge of a perfect circle. The minute I draw a circle, it presents the knowledge of the perfect circle, compares it with the actual one, says that circle is not perfect. That mind works in stillness, and that needs to be developed. What meditation does is brings the thinking mind to rest and allows the human being to access that deeper part of the mind, intellect or reasoning part of the mind. And because you access it, say, in meditation, it then becomes possible to use it in everyday life. The mind is like water. First of all, if you agitate water so that there are waves on the top, you can't see into the water. It's only when the water becomes still that you can see into the water. 
Secondly, when there's a lot of movement in the water, all the dirt at the bottom of the water is now churned up and the water becomes cloudy. If you allow the water to become still, all the dirt in the water will subside to the bottom and then you can see clearly through the water to the bottom. In the West, we believe in using our minds, in activating our minds, in thinking our way to solutions. In the East, the tradition is to bring the mind to rest. Not to think your way to a solution, but that in absolute stillness, knowledge presents itself. Simply presents itself. It's when you go free of what you know, that new knowledge arises. I'm not going to give you the long version of this story, because I've told it before, but it was after our honeymoon, and I bought the matrimonial bed. This thing was about eight foot wide and eight foot long, right? And so when we came back from our honeymoon, it was delivered. And I decided, I was going to assemble this bed. There was two parts to it. It should have been about a 15 minute job, nothing more to it. But anyway, my wife even said to me, would you like me to help you carry the bed upstairs? And I thought, as the man of the house, I should be able to carry the matrimonial bed up to the bedroom, which was about three flights up. So anyway, one coronary later, I have the bed upstairs in the bedroom. And I start to link the two bits of the bed at the base together, and then I put in the legs. And three of the legs go into the hole where they were meant to go, and fit. And the fourth leg wouldn't go in. So immediately I cursed Irish manufacturing and said, this is ridiculous. If I bought an Italian bed, you know, it would have worked or something like this. And I said, they've obviously supplied me with a leg that is too big to go into the hole. The leg was made of metal, so I got a file, and I started to file away this leg. Now, this is no exaggeration. Two and a half hours later, I'm now stripped to the waist, because there's perspiration pouring down me, and I'm filing away at this leg, and making no impression on it, and I'm nearly reduced to tears of frustration. The bed is leaning over, because it hasn't got the fourth leg. Eventually, in absolute despair, I sat on this sort of leaning bed, right? I sat down, and I wanted to cry, because it had defeated me. And as I sat there, suddenly the mind became very, very still. And the thought arose in my mind, maybe it's not the leg that's too big, maybe the hole is too small. So I looked in the hole, and there was a bit of wood stuck in it, which I removed, <laughs> and stuck the leg in it. At that age, I was a chartered accountant. I was advising people on million-pound deals, how to buy this, sell this, make fortunes. And yet I couldn't assemble a bed. So when the mind becomes agitated, we become incredibly stupid. But when the mind becomes still, then the possibility of a knowledge arising from you know not where presents itself to you. And in that stillness, you can see whether that knowledge is useful or not. So, it is that stillness of mind that needs to be developed. And that's why, nowadays, in schools, they are starting to introduce meditation in a number of schools, or mindfulness. This is incredibly useful. 
But the reality is that our minds have become so agitated that we find it very, very difficult to bring them to rest. There is a real need for some technique, and in my experience, meditation is the greatest of all the techniques. I certainly haven't found anything that can bring this mind to rest as much as meditation can. But whatever can bring your mind to rest, every day that mind should enjoy that rest, that simple stillness. And then you bring that stillness into your daily activities and live a creative life. So that's it. I spent all my time listening very closely to what you're saying, and as a result, I regret that I didn't take any notes. So is there a possibility of getting notes like the eight of the nine points? Yes. First of all, the notes are available to everybody, so you just have to leave your email address, and then we send them to you. But I am going to pick you up on one thing. When you really, really listen, then the words go in. And if you really, really listen, they're inscribed in your heart. Not in your superficial mind, but in your heart. You might go looking for them, and you won't be able to find them. You might say, what was he talking about, and I can't remember. But if you really do listen from stillness, and you let the words in, they will be inscribed in your heart, and then when you need them, you'll remember them. You don't have to take notes. You should discipline yourself not to take notes. In business, I still act as a consultant or a director of a number of companies. And I always go in without notes. And I always leave without notes. So I'm given lots of paper in the middle of board meetings with all sorts of figures and everything like that. And the key is to really listen. Really, really listen. What I find is that people are taking notes but they're not listening. It's very important that you hear the sound of what's being said. So again, I divert away from board meetings. But if you hear an entertainer say, I think you're the most wonderful audience in the world and this is the highlight of my career, you know he's being paid about $50,000 a word. There's no sincerity because you're listening to the sound of his voice. But then sometimes a grandchild will come up to you and say, I love you, granddad, and your heart melts. The words are not as glorious as the entertainer's words, but what melts your heart is the sound. If you really want the meaning, you have to be very still and let the words into your heart, because it's your heart that picks up the meaning. The thinking mind does things like, I asked her, was she all right? And she said she was. So that's the end of that. <laughs> that's that stupid thinking mind. Whereas the heart would hear in the sound of the voice that things are not all right. This happens to males, perhaps more than females, because they're useless at listening. Sometimes, after about three days, they wake up to the fact that there's something wrong in the house. <laughs> there's a sort of a silence of the grave about the house. And when cups of tea hit the table, they seem to hit them with a louder sound than normal. Only then did they say, is there something wrong? And then they're told it was the anniversary about three weeks ago, or whatever it was. But if you're very still, you don't have to wait three days. You pick it up at the instant. You can hear in the sound of the voice the meaning and the emotional content. And the emotional content is much more um, valuable 
then let's call it the rational content, if I may say it like that. You often find that you know, people tell you a story and it's very sequential, A to B to C to D, and you walk away and say, doesn't add up. And now your rational mind cannot tell you where the flaw in the story is, but your heart is telling you, this doesn't add up. So you need to be very still. When you're trying to understand, don't try to retain. The secret to understanding is receptivity, not retention. If you ever see somebody, let's say, they're on one of these shows and they have to answer a number of questions. I'm going back about 20 years now. If they've answered X number of questions, then they can have Y number of goodies. And so they're asked to stand by this conveyor belt and all these goodies come down. You see? What you find, because you're not the winner, you remember about 80% of the goodies. Because your mind is relatively still. The person up there says, well, I have to remember. And at the end of it, they say, well, well there was the toaster. <laughs> and that's it. All they can remember is the stupid toaster. They already have two toasters at home. <laughs> so, the secret is to let the mind be very, very still. Very, very still. It does two things. One is, you remember what you have forgotten in stillness. This is why you remember the person's name 30 minutes later. The second thing, not only will you remember what you have forgotten, but new knowledge will come in which is not limited by your experience to date. This is why sometimes children really delight us, because they open us up to a world that we've closed down. So if I ask you to think of the perfect picnic, you might think of you know, an oak tree and a babbling brook and one of those Foxford rugs and you reading there, and the children are about a quarter of a mile away, safe, <laughs> safe, because your wife is looking after them, and you're just reading this beautiful poetry from that, and it's excellent, the wine is magnificent. So that's your idea of a picnic. So if it rains, you can't go on a picnic. But a child might say to you, let's have the picnic in the sitting room. And if you're innocent enough, you say yes. And then you have a fantastic picnic in your sitting room. This is what we need to do. We need to break down this frozen knowledge which says things have to be a particular way. They don't have to be a particular way. It's very obvious that a human being doesn't have to look a particular way. There's 6.9 billion of them and they all look different. Isn't that fantastic? Wouldn't it be dreadful if you kept seeing yourself all over the place? <laughs> so that's great freedom, that you can take something very simple, like a round head and two ears and two nostrils and eyes and a mouth, and you can do it 6.9 billion times and not repeat yourself. Isn't that magnificent? And only tiny little variations. But that's the brilliance of the design. After about three songs, all Slade songs sounded the same. <laughs> so to be able to produce 6.9 billion and not repeat yourself, that is a master designer. Or a master designer. Is that okay? Yeah.
question or two of them is both about ambitions. There seems to be, well, in this country and many countries, this constant need for providing food and pushing children and young adults and, and older adults continue to move forward in their lives, be more and more ambitious. And that sounds to me to be sort of contradictory to what you were talking about in terms of achieving stillness and creativity. So I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a little bit about that. And secondly, I was wondering how ambitious the way we should all be about finding out what is the song that we have come here to sing or the dance that we have come here to dance. Should we invest energy in finding that out for ourselves or is it something that will arise or make itself obvious through stillness? Well, I'll answer the second first, if I may, because I've already forgotten the first. <laughs> Despite my intent listening and it being inscribed in my heart. <laughs> you should dedicate your entire life to discovering what song you came into this world to sing and what dance you were meant to dance. Because in that song or dance is your fulfillment. Only then will you truly rest. It's the same if you really find your partner for life. It never crosses your mind that there might be a better one somewhere else. Because your heart is at rest. And when you find that career, it's exactly the same. It brings that searching for fulfillment to rest. Balance of your life is an expression of that fulfillment. It doesn't come to a stop. It's an ever unfolding expression of this fulfillment. So it's gloriously expanding and unfolding in ever new ways. But you have found the meaning to it or the centre to it. If you don't find that song that you were meant to sing or that dance you were meant to dance, you will be restless all your life. And you will make the best of what you have. But that's what it will be. At times, particularly when you're not busy, the mind will wonder, should I have done this? What happens if I had married Fred? <laughs> I wonder where Fred is now. <laughs> you know? The mind will wonder, but when you find that dance, then there are no more questions. You know that you were designed for it. It's the perfect fit for you. And as I said, the heart is at rest. So it's most important to find it. And to find that, you have to be free of all ideas. In terms of career, you mustn't let CAO points dominate, or job availability, or power, or money, or anything influence you at all. At all, at all. You must look deep into your heart, and what you say to yourself, if it is career, what is it that I would love to do eight hours a day for 40 years, and still love it? First of all, it will satisfy your heart. If you love it, you will wish to do it well, and you'll have all the energy to do it well. And if you do it well, you will be fairly rewarded for whatever you do. So you need never think about money, or security, or all these dreadful things. It's nothing to do with what a person should dedicate themselves to. Sometimes with jobs, we call them vocations. But the truth of the matter is, we all have a vocation. Our real job, that dance is a vocation. It's actually a calling. Now, 
The reason you and I, at times, don't hear that calling is because we're making so much noise. It never screams at you. It's a very silent voice. And it tells you, this is it. And you say, yes. So if you're very silent, very still within, you will hear that voice, which is calling. It's been calling you all your life, by the way. It's been calling you to it, but you've been so busy elsewhere, you haven't heard it. So it's very important to become still and hear that voice. And it will tell you, by the way, you say, this is it. And you will nod your head in agreement. There will be absolute certainty. It will be one of those magnificent decisions where you never look back. You don't have to decide again and again and again. You decide once and that's it. Is that okay? Now, then the first question was... The first question was just a little prevailing generally in the West about constant change. Oh, yeah. Am ambition. Okay. Ambition is a terrible thing in the, the fullest sense of the word ambition. The terrible thing is that it's based on an idea. And so people think, my ambition is to have a million euro. But what happens if your destiny is to have ten million? You see, maybe your destiny is far greater than your ambition. Your ambition is just an idea, and most of it's comparative. Let's say most of you said, I would like to have a million in your bank account, for example. But if you lived in a place where everybody had 25 million, well, for God's sake, that's no good. <laughs> I want 26. Because most of our ambition is relative, and we want to be better off than others. So, even if we say, for example, that we would be satisfied if we earned 100,000 a year, if everybody else is earning 120,000, we're dissatisfied. If you design a car with the capacity to do 300 miles an hour, you obviously have in mind that it should be driven fast. Otherwise, you wouldn't give it that capacity. It is obvious that the human being has colossal capacity, has the capacity to love everybody has the capacity to understand the all. So there must be a very large purpose to his or her existence. Hammers can only be used for hammering, so it's a pretty dull life. But the human being has such capacity, it's very obvious that there's a very large purpose. The universe's plan for you is so much greater than any plan you could possibly conceive for yourself. So much greater. The universe doesn't want you to be quite happy, or very, very happy, or it doesn't want you just to enjoy sunny days, and certainly doesn't for Irish people anyway. It wants you to enjoy absolute bliss, without limit, without end. That's what it wants. Ambition is normally very, very small. All the striving is based on a dissatisfaction with now. Whereas the real way to live your life is to be happy now and then discover so many ways to express that happiness. But you're expressing your happiness in happiness rather than you're striving for happiness in current misery. Let's say if you have children, the idea is to remind the child, to encourage the child, to be happy now. And in that happiness, find out 
how we would like to express that happiness. A miserable person can never find anything other than misery. You cannot make a reasonable decision when you're in misery. If your mind is not absolutely at rest, so it's not free of misery and it's not free of doubt, and you need to make a decision, time demands that you make a decision, find somebody whose mind is at rest, who does not entertain any doubt, and present the situation to him. Don't force your mind to make one of those decisions. So, Thank you very much. no problem. Okay, we should leave it at that. Thank you very much.